Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, talking with you once again about practical issues related to ministry leadership. Today I want to talk about a subject that is not new for me in one sense, and that I've been thinking about it for a long time, and probably have done um, a number of things related to this subject over the years without really even identifying or knowing that's what I was working on. Uh, but it's new for me in the sense that I've not really taught much about it and I've not written anything about it, and that is I want to talk today about shaping culture to support vision. Shaping culture to support vision. Uh, John Maxwell is reported to have said, although I've looked for this quote and I can't find it in any of Maxwell's stuff, but this is where I got the quote was from attributed to him. Uh, he has reportedly uh, said, culture eats vision for lunch. Uh, and I thought about that quote a lot, and I really agree with it. Culture eats vision for lunch, meaning that no matter how compelling your vision, if your organizational culture or your ministry culture or your church culture doesn't support the accomplishment of that vision, the vision simply won't happen. Now, I first started thinking about this problem a number of years ago when I was the executive director of the Northwest Baptist Convention. We were, like most state conventions, uh, heavily involved in sponsoring conferences and seminars and training events. We would bring in some of the best speakers, uh, best ministry practitioners, people who are really getting the job done in various areas, evangelism, discipleship, uh, church planting, missions and missions involvement, you name it. We had seminars, conferences, courses, and even whole conventions devoted to these themes. And pastors and other church leaders would come to these conferences, they would hear the material taught, they would, uh, they would gather the materials, and many of them would go back to churches or to ministry organizations and try to put into practice what they'd learned. The hard reality, though, was not very much changed. And this really frustrated me. As, as I watched it over the years, I, I wondered, why are we doing all this? What, what difference is it really making? And here's what I discerned was the problem. The problem was that we were inspiring leaders with greater vision and giving them tools to accomplish that vision and then sending them back into cultures which were strongly structured to prohibit that vision from being accomplished. Uh, here's an example. Uh, we had a seminar once on uh, how to lead a, a church to have more than one worship services, to move to two worship services or sometimes even three or four or five, whatever. But for the most part, these were churches that had one worship service that wanted to change to have two worship services. And one of the reasons for doing that, of course, is to alleviate space concerns and to make better use of the space that we've been given. And so we trained people how to do that, and the pastors went back and immediately uh, reported pretty significant conflict and pushback to the idea of more than one worship service. And here's what the church leaders said. Well, if, you, if we have two services, we'll lose the family feel of our church. If we have two services, we won't all know each other anymore. If we have two services, we'll divide the fellowship. So the culture of churches that were thinking these ways, the culture was strongly oriented toward family and fellowship and relationship and commonality, meaning that we can only be the size church that can meet in one building all at the same time and everyone know each other's names. In fact, this became one of the questions that I often ask church leaders uh, who are thinking about uh, church growth and shifting culture, and that is to 
to ask this basic question of their church. Uh, in our church, do we all need to know each other's names? And if that's the case, then your church isn't going to grow much beyond 200 because that's about as many names as any one person can remember in relationships that any person can keep up with. So if that's the culture, the culture of our church is fellowship and relationship and commonality, and we really have to be a, a family such that we all know each other's names, then that culture is so strong that it doesn't matter what kind of visionary leadership you present about reaching dozens or hundreds more people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and increasing baptisms and starting new ministries, that's simply not going to happen because culture is going to eat that vision for lunch. Now, that was my earliest experience with really thinking through what this, what this issue was about culture and vision. Now, on a more positive note, I really saw the uh, impact of how culture can embrace vision and support vision here at Gateway Seminary. Uh, when I came to the seminary, uh, the seminary embraced its mission in a fresh way under my leadership. Now, that doesn't mean it wasn't embracing its ministry under the previous president, but new president, new energy, uh, you know, some new terminology, and the seminary really embraced that as we went forward. So in 2010, we, we adopted this new statement of our mission, which is, our mission is shaping leaders who expand God's kingdom around the world. And I used a phrase in presenting that mission statement over and over again, and that is, the mission matters most. And I preached about that and talked about that, and it became sort of a watchword in our system. And then we started making decisions about how to be a seminary based on that mission. And we did that from 2010 up through about 2014, so that the the, uh, the culture of the seminary in a fresh and more meaningful way really embraced and unified around this shared vision or mission statement that we had, uh, that we had declared. Then in 2014, when I announced that we were going to sell the campus in Mill Valley, California, build two new campuses, one in Ontario, one in Fremont, change our name to Gateway and go forward into the new iteration that we have today, I said in that speech, we're making these decisions because the mission matters most. And I gave a, a, a compelling and what turned out to be a, or a clear and what turned out to be a compelling uh, case for how the relocation really was germane to and essential for the accomplishment of our mission moving forward in the 21st century. And so when that was revealed and when people uh, uh, believed it, they rose up in unity and went forward together in ways that were really supernatural. Now, I've been asked a lot of times all over the country in the past few years as I've taught on my book about the relocation, how did you produce such unity? And I, I, I understand where the question's coming from, but the answer is not that I, the answer is not that I produced unity. The answer is that we had developed a culture that was really unified around a mission, and when the people believed that the change proposed really was directly related to the mission, that the mission really did matter more than property or land development or legal struggles or anything like that, even our heritage in that location, because the mission matters most, the culture reinforced and uh, expressed itself in the fulfillment of that mission or that vision. So culture is very significant, and culture really does have great power over whether vision is accomplished in an organization. 
Now, culture has been defined uh, by a guy named Daniel Coyle in a book, The Culture Code, as living a set of living relationships working toward a shared goal. Now, I like that def definition on one level because it emphasizes that it's a living relationship and it's culture all moving in a specific direction. Uh, but tucked within that definition is some uh, explanation needed because it sounds sort of positive in the definition. Culture is a set of living relationships working toward a shared goal. But remember, that shared goal may be detrimental to the organization's vision. In other words, if the shared goal of the church is fellowship, conformity, commonality, all being in the same room, all knowing each other's names, if that's the shared goal and there's a set of living relationships, meaning church members who are all codified, unified, and committed to that shared goal, then that shared goal does express the culture, no question about it, and the definition fits, but it really doesn't address the issue that sometimes culture even when it meets its definition, can have negative impact on vision. So please hear that definition, that culture is a set of living relationships. It's a set of how people connect with and relate to one another and express that organizationally, all working toward the same goal, a shared goal, and that's absolutely true. But just remember, that shared goal can be very positive or it can be very negative. Now, back to John Maxwell. He actually identified some ways that culture and vision relate, I think they're very insightful. He said, if you articulate a great vision to an organization without the appropriate culture, you'll never achieve the vision. And he went on to say, but if your organization has a wonderful culture, but no vision, then you might really enjoy your time together, but you'll never go anywhere. That's a great expression of how culture and vision connect to one another. They're both important. One without the other, not going to be effective. But when they both come together, something really powerful can happen. Now, another resource that I've been reading in terms of thinking about culture and its impact is an article I came across in the Harvard Business Review. You can find it in the January-February 2018 edition. Uh, you can find it online, Harvard Business Review, January-February 2018. This article is all about uh, culture and about uh, how it's created, how it's guided, how it's shaped. The article is entitled, The Leader's Guide to Corporate Culture. Uh, Boris Grosberg is the lead author, although there are four authors listed on the uh, title page. So this article uh, is, a, is a comprehensive uh, study of organizational culture, and one of the things that they did was they identified about eight different culture styles that either they observe exist in companies or people tell them that uh, are important in companies. So they invented or they, uh, they uh, observed these eight different culture styles. Uh, they wrote a definition for each one, uh, some advantages and disadvantages, and then they surveyed uh, large numbers of people and asked them to rank these eight culture styles in order of most importance to them as an employee in an organization. Now, I realize this is a little different than members of a church, but I think the, 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 the findings are so striking that it's not going to be hard for us to see how this can be applied not only in a ministry organization like mine, but even in a church context. So the eight culture styles were these, caring, purpose, learning, enjoyment, results, authority, safety, and order. In other words, 
the culture exists to promote caring or to accomplish purpose or to facilitate learning or to produce enjoyment or to achieve results or to enforce authority or to guarantee safety or to shape order. I mean, that's what this means, that cultures exist to do these different things. Now, the sur people surveyed were asked to rank the top two of these that they felt were most important for them personally and for the function of their organization. The results were striking. Two of these received very high percentage. The other six were all 15% or less. So what were the two that were the highest? The number one culture style that was perceived to be important to participants in this survey, meaning they said this was the most important for them and the most important for their organization, was produce results. That culture style is defined as achievement, being driven, being goal-focused. Its advantages are improved execution, external focus on accomplishing the mission of the organization, capability building within the organization, and goal achievement, meaning we're actually getting something done. 89% of the respondents in this survey ranked produce results as the number one or the number two most desired aspects of culture in their organization. Wow. Many people today would not have assumed that because they would have thought, well, it's probably something else, like we want to be a learning organization, or, or we really want to be a, a, you know, a purposeful organization. Those things got very low marks. What got the number one mark was we want to be results-oriented. The most healthy cultures in which to work are cultures in which there's something that's clearly identified as a goal. We're clearly on mission to accomplish it. We're checking boxes about how we're getting there. We're actually getting something done. That's where people want to work, and quite frankly, I think it's where they want to go to church, where the culture is marked by a results orientation. Let's do something, and let's work together to get that done. I find this so very significant because there's so much emphasis in our world today, including our ministry world, on community and building community, and man, I'm all for that. But in the Bible and from this study, both, we see that community is best built when people are doing something together in biblical terms when they're on mission, when they're moving forward, when they're accomplishing together, when they're doing something. Uh, that's, when, uh, that's when culture is most enjoyed by people. And then number two on the list, caring. Now, this didn't surprise me, but what did surprise me was that 89% of the people surveyed ranked results number one or two on their list, and 63% ranked it number caring as number one or two. Now, this one really didn't surprise me that much, but it did in a little bit, uh, in one sense, because this, this survey was done in a secular set of organizations. So even in that context, people said they wanted a culture that was warm and sincere and relational. And some of the advantages of a caring culture are improved teamwork, engagement, uh, improved communication, higher trust, a greater sense of belonging. So people said two things. They want to be a re in a results-oriented culture that has a caring component that's part of it. Now, you might say, well, that, that's not all that that earth shattering or that's not all that breathtaking. Well, 
It isn't until you realize that of the eight options that were given, no other option got even 15% of the people saying it was number one or two on their list, that results and caring were off the charts greater, uh, of greater importance than anything else in shaping organizational culture. Man, listen, this is so good for us in the Christian community because this is who we are. This is who we are. Uh, the, the most basic definition of the church is a fellowship on mission. And that encapsulates both, both aspects of what it means to create culture and to create the kind of culture people want to be involved in as a, uh, as a result of this Harvard Business Review study. Harvard Business Review says that people want to be in a results-oriented culture that demonstrates caring along the way. Those are the two most important things. That's a church that is a fellowship, meaning caring, on mission, meaning doing something. And a ministry organization like Gateway Seminary, same thing. We want to emphasize these two aspects of culture to create an environment in which more can get done uh, in, a, in a more healthy way with people having a greater sense of ownership, investment, and involvement than any other kind of cultural setting. Now, if those are the eight culture styles and the two which tower over the other six as revealed in this study. Then there's also in this study, uh, summarized in this article, four what are called levers for evolving a culture. And when I read them, I thought those have direct and immediate application for those of us in ministry leadership. So what are the four levers for evolving a culture? Now, notice the word evolving, carefully selected. It's not about creating culture. It's about evolving culture. You already have a culture that exists in the organization or the church you're leading. It's already there. So how do you evolve it? How do you help it become more results-oriented, more caring-oriented? How do you move it toward being the kind of culture that you want it to be? Well, four steps. Number one articulate the aspiration. In other words, speak up for what you want to become. Don't be afraid to put out there something that you're not and to say to your organization, this is the kind of culture we want to have. This is the culture gap to what the kind of culture to the culture that we currently have. How do we bridge that gap? How do we make that progress? We'll get to that in a minute. That's articulating the aspiration. It's saying here's what we really want to become. Now, this is hard for some leaders because they don't want to admit that some things might not be quite right in their own culture. Uh, this last year, we've done a major internal study here at Gateway Seminary of a lot of aspects of our school, trying to lay out a plan for the next five to ten years of how we're going to go forward. You know, we've sort of reached a point where we finished this whole relocation business, and now we're at that next phase, and we're trying to lay out what does the next phase need to look like. And one of the things that surprised me when we did the surveying among our staff was uh, they spoke back to me and said, we really feel like we need to raise the level of collaboration in our organization. And I thought, that, that's nuts. We, we have a lot of collaboration in our organization. And when I went into the task force and we were talking about these results, I, I actually said it that strongly. I said, I don't get this. I mean, I, I think we have a highly collaborative organization. And one of our... <laughs> task force members said, well, Mr. President, of course you think that. You're the president. Everybody collaborates when you're in the room. I thought, wow, that is a skewing of perspective that I need to be aware of. 
So I went back and looked at the data again. Now, this doesn't mean our organization is broken. By no means. We're a good school with a lot going on. We get a lot done. But what the team said back was, we want to work better together. We want to find ways to take down some of the silos of different departments and different activities and different degree programs and different needs and different schedules and see if we can't work together more to even get more done and to get it done even more effectively. Well, for me to admit that we need to improve collaboration in our organization uh, was, was hard because I had to say that things aren't maybe as good as I thought they were or as good as I hoped they were. But now I'm articulating the aspiration. Uh, that statement about improving collaboration is in our plan going forward. It's going to be presented to our board in a few months. I expect they'll adopt it. It's not all that we're planning to do, but it's one of the ways that we're going to try to you know, increase our effectiveness and really uh, you know, supercharge what we're trying to accomplish and that is to increase collaboration. Now, that just is a small shift in our working culture here, but the way we're going to get there is that I, as leader, am going to have to articulate the aspiration. I'm going to have to say, here's where we want to go. Here's how we want to get better. Here's something that we can do more of. Articulate the aspiration. And don't be afraid to do that, even if it means you have to admit something's not quite as good as you hoped it was in your church or your ministry. Second thing you do, second lever, is to select and develop leaders who align with the target culture. Now, this is a slow process, but every time you select someone, you have to select someone who really aligns with what you're trying to accomplish, both by culture and vision. Now, I have a friend who's a college president. He surprised me a few years ago when he told me that he still interviews and makes the final decision on hiring every full-time employee. And I said, man, every full-time employee, he said, everyone. I said, how many do you not hire every year? He said, three or four. I said, really? Why not? He said, because in my interviewing of them, I'm interviewing them about two things. Number one, do they understand our vision and what we're trying to accomplish, and do they embrace it? And number two, do they fit in our culture? And he said, I've developed a series of questions I can ask that really reveal to me whether they're going to work well in the culture that we're trying to create. So he's been purposefully shaping over the years his culture and vision by selecting and developing leaders who align with both. Now, most leaders think about selecting other leaders and workers and employees and volunteers who take on significant responsibility who support the vision. But you have to also think about selecting people who support the culture if you're going to shift the culture and evolve it to the place you want it to be. Number three Third lever, use organizational conversations about culture to underscore the need for and to imp implement change. Now, that means once you've articulated the aspiration, this is where we need to go, and you've started putting leaders into place, even though that may be a slow process, that will support the culture you're trying to create. The third thing is to talk about it. To say, uh, this is what we're trying to become, and this is, th these are the people we're putting into place to try to get us there. What's holding us back? What's keeping us from doing it? What are some areas that need to change? What are some barriers that need to be overcome? What are some uh, impediments that need to be removed? What needs to happen in order to get us there? So it's articulating the aspiration, putting people into place that shape the culture in the direction you want it to go, and then talking openly about it and identifying areas that need to change and making those changes along the way as you go. 
Remember, this is about evolving culture, not immediately changing culture. It's about articulation, leadership change, conversations, and implementation along the way. And then finally, reinforce what you're trying to accomplish through organizational design, which is a fancy way of saying change the personnel manual, change the organizational chart, change the budgeting processes, change the allocation of resources, change the way the organization actually works. And make sure you make those changes to support the culture that you're trying to put into place. For example, uh, we recently had a situation here at the seminary. We were trying to choose, uh, make a decision about hiring an, an employee or not. And one of the things that came out as we interviewed the different candidates was that one of the candidates was a little light on some of the technical skills, but showed a high propensity for and a pattern of collaboration in organizations and collaboration in ministry leadership and working in a collaborative uh, environment to get things done. Well, since we're trying to enhance collaboration in our organization, we made the decision to hire this person and to get them the training they need to bring some of their uh, skills up to par. Now, they weren't... They weren't uh, completely inadequate. They just need some fine-tuning, as opposed to hiring a technical specialist who might not have the collaborative skills necessary that we think are really part of what we're trying to do right now in our organization. So that's what I mean by shape the, uh, or reinforce the change through organizational design or through organizational change. In other words, put into practice personnel changes, organizational changes, budgeting changes, put into practice hiring changes that really reinforce the culture you're trying to create. So, I'm starting to think more and more about how to write on this subject, but here in summary is what I'm trying to say today. Culture and vision have to go together for organizational health to be evident. I've spent a lot of my ministry talking about vision and, frankly, creating culture, but not really analyzing or thinking about how I did that or how it needed to be done or how it could be done more effectively. So now I'm doing some reading and thinking about how to shape culture to support the accomplishment of vision. And on this podcast today, I've tried to give you a little sample of that by giving you some definitions and some parameters to think about it. But then drawing out of this article from the Harvard Business Review, really talking about eight culture styles and the two that people most want, results and caring, and then four levers that you have in, in hand as a, as a senior leader to make these changes happen, evolving them over time. And I emphasize that over and over and over. Culture evolves over months or years. It doesn't evolve over days, sometimes not even weeks. But if you'll articulate the aspiration of what you're trying to become, select leaders as you have opportunity that support the culture you're trying to create, have dialogue among those leaders and others about the aspiration and how you want to get there and what needs to change to get there. And that may create some dissonance and may even be painful, but it's a part of the process to get it done. And then reinforce these changes through budgeting, through personnel manual changes, through organizational process changes, through policy changes, through different organizational things that really do put into place something different that supports the culture you're trying to create. Well, it's just another component of the leadership responsibility we've been given. Create culture to support vision as you lead on.